0: Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me here in New York I have Spike's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And via Skype from London, Spiked Editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Coming up on the show today, Sri Lanka, Greta Thunberg and I talk to Claire Fox who's standing for the Brexit party in the upcoming EU elections.
1: On Sunday morning, a series of coordinated bombings struck targets across Sri Lanka. Explosions at churches in Nigombo, Batikalo and Colombo, along with three hotels in the city.
2: Two more explosions followed on the outskirts of the capital.
1: Hundreds died, many of them here at St. Sebastian's Church. It's believed to be the site of the deadliest bombing. The hall was packed with families who'd come here to pray.
0: Last weekend, on Easter Sunday, suicide bombers killed at least 359 people and injured 500. Islamist terrorists targeted Christian worshippers in churches as well as top-end hotels, which were hosting Easter vigils. Brendan, can you tell us a bit more about these Easter Sunday attacks?
1: Yes. Yeah, so they were completely barbaric and shocking even by the standards of ISIS, and it does seem pretty clear now that ISIS was involved at some level and either gave support or information or um, influenced the bombers in some way. Um, Even by their standards, it's incredibly barbaric, incredibly bloody, um, deeply, profoundly misanthropic and very clearly anti-Christian. So as you say, 359 dead, many of them in churches, Christians who were gathering for Easter Sunday services, At least 45 of them children, some of whom had just finished their Sunday school morning class. So um, a real new level of barbarism. And the attacks themselves, of course, were, of course, very shocking. And some of the response has been quite shocking, too, because there's been a real reluctance among some world leaders even to say the word Christian about the people who were slaughtered. Um, And it definitely has not caused the same level of reaction or the same angry reaction as the mosque massacre in Christchurch a few weeks ago. And I think that's incredibly interesting. And what it really points to, I think, is the internationalization of identity politics, where we now even judge acts of terrorism according to who the victims are. Are they from a victim community, like the Muslim community, Or are they from a so-called privileged community like the Christian community supposedly is? And I think we're now seeing a really horrible, dark situation where even the victims of terrorism are categorised according to the politics of identity. And I think that's a really horrible new development in the internationalisation of the culture wars. Tom?
3: No, I think when it came out in the last couple of days that ISIS were claiming responsibility for it, it did start to kind of make... uh... A lot more sense a lot more kind of grim sense so originally it was pinned on this group in Sri Lanka National Tawid Jamath it was this small Islamist group run by this guy called Muhammad Zaharan who was they were mainly known really for being kind of anti-Buddhist you know Sri, Lank- Sri Lanka being a majority Buddhist country and only up to now known for beheading a few kind of Buddha statues so they weren't necessarily they were on the radar but they weren't necessarily seen as that sophisticated and a lot of terror experts from the off were pointing out that this was far more sophisticated but more crucially it was more out of that kind of ISIS al Qaeda global militant Islamist playbook where at various points in recent years they've hit multiple places of Christian worship on a high holiday trying to get the most kind of international attention. So in recent years we've seen this in Lahore, Pakistan on Easter Sunday in 2016 as well as the Attack in um, Peshawar in Pakistan city, which killed scores of Christian worshippers, and I think what this really reminds us of is, aside from the kind of Christian aspect to this, but it's really that globalised form of violence. How detached these kinds of groups are from the, what might be the local tensions, the local concerns, the local issues on any level and as Brendan wrote about this week what most of the, what these groups are really trying to do is take a country like Sri Lanka and just use it as a kind of stage for the most kind of depraved political theater imaginable and I think that's one of the aspects of this um, Islamist terrorism that we're still kind of coming to terms with
1: yeah i really agree with that and i think it's been clear for a while that we're living through an era of a kind of new kind of barbarism of the kind of stuff we haven't really seen in modern history. And I think a lot of people fail to appreciate that. This is an incredibly unanchored form of terrorism. It it has no moral restraint whatsoever. It will do almost anything in order to create a spectacle of death, to create a spectacle of suffering. This is something very new, something that has been growing for the past 10 or 15 years, and which doesn't get enough Focus, I think, enough intellectual attention, enough political attention, the uniqueness of it and the depravity of it. And as Tom says, you know, what's particularly new is that it might happen in particular areas of the world, of course, but it's very rarely attached to the local politics or the local concerns in the way that violent militant groups might have been in the recent past. This is something where. The local territory is merely a, a stage on which to perform an incredibly barbaric seven century style um, massacre or act of barbarism. Uh, and so that's why I find the response so disturbing. And it's almost as if um, Westerners, Western liberals in particular, are so dumbfounded by this or so unwilling to criticize anything that has the word Islam in it Mm. and so unsure of standing up for Christian communities in particular that they simply either say nothing at all or they say something incredibly mealy-mouthed. And the reason I think it's worth raising that is not simply to say, where is your condemnation? Although that is a good question. It is really to ask whether there might be a relationship now between Western cowardice and between this new barbarism, because I think the more that the West feels, it seems utterly incapable of ideologically and politically standing up to this new terrorism, mm. the more it kind of unwittingly greenlights this new terrorism, or at least says, look, we're not going to contem- condemn you too much, so why don't you do a bit more of it? So I think it's possible now that there is a symbiotic relationship between Western cowardice And Islamic state barbarism.
3: And just quickly to tack on to that, because I think the Christian aspect of this is really Mm -hmm. striking. Because, as you say, Brendan, the kind of failure to condemn it, and the kind of concern around kind of talking about these things in the strongest possible terms. This has nothing to do with race at this point, you know, which is kind of the claim that is made: Mm -hmm. is that Islam is a racialized religion, at least in the eyes of you know people like the terrorists in Christchurch, and that's part of the kind of calculation. But when, for instance, as Paul Carman pointed out on Spike this week groups like the pew research center saying that christians are the most persecuted religious group globally we're not talking there about kind of evangelical christians in the u.s not being allowed to call christmas christmas you know we're talking about often brown-skinned people in various parts of the world who are finding themselves on the end of horrific um you know violence as well as repression and that's what's one of the things that's so kind of interesting about this whole discussion is that really what people are nervous about discussing in this case is is the religious aspect to it how they've ended up at that place i don't fully know but just but it does nevertheless that kind of identitarian calculation does lead them to a situation in which they're offering at best kind of mealy mouthed or less strong condemnations of attacks which at the end of the day are against persecuted minorities in difficult parts of the world
0: I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Greta Thunberg, Swedish climate change activist and founder of the School Strike Movement, came to the UK this week to address the Extinction Rebellion protesters. The protesters have been blocking London's roads for the past two weeks, Calling for the UK to reduce its carbon emissions to zero, Tumberg also addressed Parliament, where she admonished politicians for failing to act on climate change. Brendan, what do you make of this adulation for uh, Greta Thunberg?
1: I think it's completely bizarre and and possibly quite harmful. Um, I wrote a piece for Spike this week on the cult of Greta Thunberg, and I wasn't sure whether to call it a cult or not. But following the response I've had, I think if anything, cult is too soft a word. This is a really crazy situation. The problem is not Greta. She's just a 16-year-old girl um, who is presumably enjoying at some level the kind of attention and the influence that she's having. The problem is the political and chattering classes who have turned her into this messy, anic figure who you are not allowed to blaspheme against, who you must simply bow and scrape before, and who everyone must apparently obey. Um, They're using her. They're exploiting her. They are using her as a moral shield um, to push forward arguments that they've already decided upon, which is that economic growth is a bad thing. Progress has gone too far. Humanity must now rein itself in and be more meek and more sustainable, as they say. So they're using her as a shield to push those kind of arguments. The reason I think that's bad is, firstly, mainly... Because this is a girl who, as we all know, has had a history of mental health problems. Um, According to her own family, she has self-harmed. And she's going around the world talking about how terrified she is. She's crying in front of people. She says the world is on fire. She thinks that her generation may not see the future. This is a terrified young woman. And she's been used by people very cynically to stoke up the politics of fear. I think that's a really dangerous game to play. So when people like Caroline Lucas and George Monbiot and all of the rest of them are pushing this mentally fragile girl to play a particular political role, they are possibly damaging her further. And they are definitely damaging political debate by silence, any, silencing anyone who criticises the politics of environmentalism.
0: She's even been nominated for a Nobel mm-hmm. Peace Prize, which is, you know, extraordinary for someone who hasn't yet actually achieved the stated goal of, you know, bringing carbon emissions down and all of that stuff.
3: It's not the first time it happened. I mean, Obama winning Nobel Peace Prize—he was barely there for two months. But at least <laughs> he was an adult, of course. But and I think that's the big thing about this: is aside from it being slightly distressing watching this all pan out, it really infantilizes the debate as well and you know put, there's so much kind of nonsense in this i mean in the speech she gave to westminster which was you know republished everywhere and lauded um, across the board she made this point of saying i know many of you don't want to listen to us you say we are just children then you look at the photos from the event and it's ed Millerband, michael gove and leila moran staring up at her in kind of childlike <laughs> wonder um and if you st- and It's just quite clear that this isn't the case. Greta and the kind of middle-class schoolchildren around the world that she's inspired to go on strike every Friday are not really kicking against the kind of elite consensus. They're being fed these ideas by adults in the first place because they're young people, you know, they're not necessarily coming up with these things entirely of their own volition. And their actions are being lauded and encouraged and incentivized by adults. It's adults who's turned Greta into this star, who invited her to Davos and to the Vatican, who have now nominated her for a Nobel Prize peace prize and when people say she's having an impact what they really mean is it's journalists and politicians saying she perfectly reflects what it is that i already think And i think not only is this kind of aside from the you know concerns about Greta's own mental health as as brendan has talked about it's just deeply cynical because i think as brendan found out this week if you make a child Mm. (laughs) the entire embodiment of the arguments that you want to make and of being un- otherwise unsuccessful in making convincingly then you make those arguments imp- more impervious to criticism because as soon as you have a pop at them you're apparently having a pop at an autistic girl as brendan was accused of this week
0: i think i think it's it's bizarre because on, you know on the one hand you have this infantilization of, of adults all cooing after this child but then you have um you know the adultification of of children and I suppose we've seen over the last few few years the way, you know, children and young people and youth are held up as these kind of unassailable characteristics. You know, young people are more progressive than the elderly. Young people voted Remain. Young people vote Labour. Young people are going to now, you know, save the planet from the nasty adults. I mean, I just can't help but think what a, a what a disgraceful abdication of responsibility it is for, for adults to, you know, push this politicking onto children but also you know how is it that there have been so many adults that just sit by while you know these kids are going on climate strike and saying things like I shouldn't have to go to school because there is no future you know when you hear kids saying that they think the world is going to go up in flames you know why has there not been any adult in their life that has reassured them that that is not quite what the science is saying the vision of hellfire and misery is is quite a way off from you know the scientific consensus
1: yeah it's it's entirely religious uh, fundamentalist as well in fact and the way in which they talk you know they openly talk about the fire that's coming to consume us for uh, for our eco sins and because we eat meat or fly around the world or do all these things that that they disapprove of it's it's a very um, religiously judgmental style of movement I also think it's actually politically depraved. I mean, can you imagine campaigning to slow down economic growth or stop economic growth at a time when billions of people still live in poverty? Mm. I mean, the cal- the callousness of that, the extraordinary callousness is is something that we really, those of us who consider ourselves to be, genuinely progressive and genuinely concerned with the fact that much of the world is still underdeveloped, with the fact that huge swathes of mankind still live in poverty on on less than two dollars a day, still don't have access to all the things that we take for granted, like hospitals and airplanes and cars and roads and everything else. Those of us who are concerned for that section of humanity actually find the politics of environmentalism to be a a repulsive form of politics, because it is an apology for poverty. Mm. It is a a politically correct way to say, let's stop economic growth. Because if you said it in, in an unpolitically correct way, if you said, well, it's too bad that millions, billions of people live in poverty, we simply can't grow anymore. So screw them. That would be seen as unacceptable. So every aspect of it is terrible. Um, this is a, an upper middle class movement, which doesn't give a damn about the existence of poverty across the world, and which is now using children as a moral shield to deflect political criticism. Mm. There is nothing in this movement that is positive on any level whatsoever. And I think it's really worth reminding ourselves of that.
0: The the environmentalists were at least more honest about their intentions in the past. I mean, I quoted um, George Monbiot Ten years ago, George Monbiot not only wrote an article saying bring on the recession and that, you know, we've already reached the peak um, peak economic performance because poor people can now afford expensive haircuts and mobile phones. <laughs> he, he also very explicitly said that environmentalism is a campaign for austerity. Environmentalism is a campaign against freedom. Environmentalism is a campaign against people. Now they've found a much nicer and more politically correct way to express that, but the intentions are still the same. Mm. And I, I
3: think the other thing is that I think the left has got a lot to answer for. There's no necessary reason why these, why the left and the kind of climate movement should have necessarily fused themselves so much together. You know, I mean, this is a point that Spike always yeah. makes until we're, you know, blue in the face. Insofar as you know, left wing politics used to be about overcoming nature, exploiting Ooh. nature to the end of and building up humankind. That Trotsky quote that we often refer to as far as my you know our politics is really about increasing the power of man over nature and decreasing the power of man over man and yet the way in which those two things have been so perfectly fused in such a way that the kind of paradox of you have a kind of lamely anti-tory austerity Mm. left politics and yet a very enthusiastic pro-eco austerity left politics seem to be able to coexist without any questioning whatsoever
0: Hi there, I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far, and if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us, so we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Next month, Britain goes to the polls for the European Parliament elections, These elections should not be happening. The government promised it would take Britain out of the EU with or without a deal by this stage. But this month, the Brexit party was launched, led by Nigel Farage, and it's already topping the polls. To find out more about the party, I spoke to one of their candidates,
2: Claire Fox. I started off by asking her why she was standing. I thought very long and hard about this because, first of all, I thoroughly enjoy the work that I do, working at the Academy of Ideas, And I haven't been formally involved in the political arena. But I really found it infuriating that the whole fight for democracy in relation to Brexit had, in a way, been abandoned by people who were left-leaning radicals and progressives. Mm. And I just felt that with the Brexit Party standing, that it was really important to kind of step up and make a, 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 a different kind of progressive case for... Um, why popular sovereignty was important and how furious I am um, with it being betrayed. Yeah. And would you say, do you think democracy itself is on the line in in these elections? Well, that's what I fear. I'm sure those of us who, you know, went through the whole EU referendum campaign, maybe, as I was, maybe surprised that Leave won. I, I didn't expect that. But there was an absolute flowering and flourishing of... Democratic excitement, you know, so many people voted who hadn't voted be- before. Um, you know, there was a real sense that something was happening, that that old there is no alternative was being shaken up. Things which you've talked about on the podcast lots of times. And then to watch those very same people kind of becoming so recently demoralized when they realized that we weren't going to leave on the 29th of March, that, you know, actually this was a stitch up. And that. Yeah every single uh, attempt was being made from all sides to either water down Brexit so it would be meaningless or or to actually just revoke it openly, you know. I think that then I was hearing more and more people saying to me, I'm never, ever voting again. That's it. Mm. That is it. And they weren't doing that out of apathy, but out of a sense of utter seething frustration. Now, the reason why that matters is because... You you cannot actually have democracy without the consent of the voters. Yeah. And if you actually have a parliament that completely flouts their responsibility to be answerable to the electorate and just refuses, you know, just downright refuses to do what they were mandated to do, that sets a very dangerous precedent. And I genuinely feel that this is a watershed for democracy in this country absolute watershed there is a serious danger that democracy will actually be weakened to the point where we won't live in a democracy if we don't stand up
0: and and what do you make of the response to the brexit party because you know on the one hand you're top of the polls uh, you know among the public which is fantastic. But on the other, there are, you know, broadsheet newspapers and sitting MEPs saying the party should be banned. I mean, what have you made of of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the banning was only from one MEP, Molly Scott Cato, but it was astonishing when she said that, you know, um, I talk about fears of a banana Republic, you know, Oh, there's a party that's going to do well. It's opposed to my views. Let's ban it. Um, (laughs) I think that it's an easy, it's easy for the media to try and caricature and characterize this party as, um, right wing and far right and all of these kind of labels that are used to and have been used in fact to smear Brexit voters and there's no doubt that Nigel Farage and the whole um, UKIP uh, history has a certain amount of baggage but what I think it's fair to say about the Brexit party is they've gone out of their way um, to their credit to have as wider. a array of candidates with mm. different political backgrounds, different social backgrounds, standing for different reasons to try and represent somehow that this uh, astonishing turn of events where our EU referendum vote is being so traduced, um, that they're very angry and that they want to do something about it. So the, the thing that's really sad about the media is, is that so many people in the media just don't understand why the Brexit Party would have the support it has mm. and it's precisely that complete inability to grasp how important it was for people that their vote was taken seriously, and then how annoyed they have been at the way they've been called racist and uh, you know, ignorant, uh, duped uh, 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 people, and so on over the last uh, period of time. That they can't understand that it obviously helps explain in some ways both why the referendum was one for Leave and why there's been very little change in the minds of voters um, and why now the Brexit party is likely to have a big surge. Does
0: the Does the Brexit party, for instance, have a stance on immigration, for instance? I mean, a, a, one of the big posters from the Brexit campaign that people keep referring back to was this Leave.eu poster showing refugees coming into Europe. I mean, what's What's the take on, on that for this party?
2: Well, f- firstly on that infamous poster you know I was as outraged as anyone by I thought it was cheap and ultimately uh, uh, pandering to a kind of racist fear of refugees and had absolutely nothing to do with whether we were to vote to stay in the EU or not and I think it's been suitably um you know both lampooned and condemned by everyone and I don't just say that to virtue signal I genuinely thought it was a vile piece of propaganda um As it happens on the Brexit party, they're not actually developing a proper manifesto. The main point that they're making is to deliver Brexit no ifs, no buts. Mm. Just from my point of view, you know, somebody who's got a very liberal attitude to immigration, I've always believed that the important question was whether we controlled the borders or not, and that I won the democratic argument amongst my fellow citizens about what levels of immigration we should have. You know, I might want open borders and liberal immigration, but, you know, I can't just wish that from on high. I have to convince the people of it. So that's no doubt something that Nigel and I would argue over. But on the particular of the refugee issue, you know, whatever I found distasteful about that poster, it is nothing to the absolute fury I feel about Guy Verhofstadt over the weekend. Yeah boasting about the number of armed guards there are going to be around fortress Europe to keep out refugees. Now, I consider that to be going to lead to and already has been responsible for the deaths and drownings of people in the sea. This isn't a poster. This is real life. And so I wish those people who were as agitated about the poster were as condemnatory about the faux... Uh, a, a liberal cosmopolitanism of a European Union that is actually hardline, brutal about illegal migrants um, and refugees to the point where their uh, deaths are not something that they're embarrassed about. How do you think the Brexit
0: party fits in with the kind of wider European populist moment?
2: The mainstream political parties that have been so complacent in their technocracy and their inability to uh, relate to their social bases. In fact, they've just abandoned their social bases. They're far more comfortable hanging out with each other or hanging out in Brussels, that they haven't understood that the electorate demand in every European country, I think now, that, that this is not good enough, that we want something more, some change, and that can be a bit... Um, broad in terms of what that might mean in terms of manifestos, but it's obviously should be a wake up call. And I think, in a way, the Brexit Party at the moment represents an, a, a, a sort of new kid on the block. In that sense, it's not UKIP. It's not actually just focused on Brexit. I don't mean that they're standing on a wider manifesto, but the issue of Brexit is no longer just about how you relate to the EU. It's about what it's like to live in a democracy when it's being sold out. And I think in that sense, it's part of this broader shake-up of mainstream political life. And we, it, you know, in that sense, it represents change and it's got certain exciting possibilities. But don't get me wrong, you know, I, as somebody who's been involved in left-wing politics all my life, there's no doubt that that, that you kind of standing on a platform of a political party run by Nigel Farage is not where I thought I'd end up. And uh, it's not because we don't agree on hardly any politics, right? But we agree on that sort of moment of change and the importance of uh, fighting to save democracy uh, from it being uh, destroyed by parliamentarians.
0: You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.